All right, so I want to take a moment uh, and just kind of, I guess maybe do a unique and proper introduction to Chris and Merrill. But uh, so I met Chris. God, I don't even remember. Sorry, give me a second. Uh, maybe 10, 10 years ago ish. Uh, were we married, baby? Yes. So no, not ten years ago. Then, like maybe maybe nine years ago. Nine, yeah, something like that. Nine years ago. Um, and I was in a season of life and ministry where I was desperate for more of God, um, for more of the gospel to like really sink deep into my heart and more of walking in the spirit. And for whatever reason, I just didn't have a whole lot of, uh, I wasn't aware of, of seasoned men and women, uh, who had experience in a couple different things that I was passionate about, the gospel, the spirit and multiplying the church. And, and then I met Chris and Merrill and I was like, my mind was blown. Because um, I had felt like a black sheep for a, a huge portion of my life in ministry, and I felt like I met another black sheep. And I know that sounds silly, but it, it, it was like a, it was like this unique, amazing thing where God was, He was inviting me to more of Himself, and He used Chris and Merrill in a really unique way for me and Ebony to invite us into more of God. Uh, the thing that I love about Chris and Merrill the most, I could give you their resume, and it's impressive. They've, you know, they've planted and led and strengthened and equipped churches literally all over the world. Um, but the thing that, one of the things that stands out to me the most about them is I think they could have way more platform, um, but they've chosen to live a life that's been marked by a couple things, by faith and by sacrifice. Um, they've, they've poured themselves out for infant little church plants like this instead of pursuing the, 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 the bright, flashy lights of as bad as it sounds, sometimes Christianity can be, can be kind of marketed in such a way where celebrities get made, um, and it, that is what it is. But one of the things that I love and appreciate about this couple so much is the way that they have sacrificed for the people of God time and time again, decade after decade, um, and they're still fighting for it, man. They're still planted another church in Costa Mesa. They're like, I love how hard they run. Um, I love how much passion they have for the people of God and more importantly for Jesus himself. So we want to create a culture of honor here. So before he says a word, will you just invite him with your applause and with your hoots and your hollers, Chris Chris Vienen. It is fabulous to be here. I uh, got feedback from my daughter who preached her last Sunday, and uh, she is by far the most loved preacher in our church now. So she's preaching at home this evening, and uh, what's that, my love? No, this evening. And uh, thanks for loving her. Thanks for enjoying her. Thank you for benefiting from her love and her passion, both in the academic world of thoughts and ideas, as well as in the grassroots practices, the praxis of worship, which is uh, particularly wonderful. I'm going to do something different with you this morning. Um, The worst that can happen, that's my modus operandi in life. I always think, what's the worst that can happen? The worst is, oh, well, thank goodness it's done. We got Tom back next week. That's the worst that can happen, and then Tom can talk about how not to preach a message, you know? That's kind of, so it's a great practical tool. Or, or... The approach this morning is going to be really, really helpful because what I'm going to do as a, as a one-off standalone moment around worship is take you through my journey 
from a very conservative Dutch reform background, which is what I was, to where I am today, 43 years later, walking with Jesus for 43 years, almost. December will be 43 years, and the journey of worship. And why to this day I'm absolutely compelled by the wonder and the privilege and the awe and the amazement that God eternal, divine, unchangeable, immutable, allows me to engage him and encounter him in the language and the poetry and the music of worship. That's what I want to do. I want to take you through some of the steps. We may run out of time and we'll just have to keep cutting back. But I want to take you through that journey. But first, let's, as always, let's grab our Bibles. I am reading from the NIV, uh, not because I think it's a better translation. It's a little more poetic, but because Dane and Stu gave this to me for my 60th birthday. So I'm sure you agree I have to use it. And um, the ESV, is a, 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 the clever people tell us it's more accurate to the original. This is a little bit more poetic, but the content is there nevertheless. Book of Acts, please. For those of you a little less acquainted with the scriptures, that's about 80% through the Bible. If you get to the maps, recalculating. <laughs> You've gone too far. Right, chapter 19 of the book of Acts, written by a doctor, Dr. Luke, and uh, I always find the author essential to understanding the text. And we'll pick up in verse, uh, let's go from verse 10. So it's Acts chapter 19 and verse 10. This went on, and these are the discussions in the, in the hall of Tyrannus, a school not unlike this, where they met every day for years. It said, this went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord or heard the gospel. And God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even the handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Now, some of the Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out, the seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest or chief priest were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who the heck are you? Oh, that's, that's in my translation. Um, and... Uh, the man who had the evil spirit jumped at them, overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. That's a beatdown. And when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was in, in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery through their uh, brought their scrolls together and burnt them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Now, that's a fantastically curious scripture to preach about worship. <laughs> Let me give you a backdrop. This is where the history nerd in me comes out. Ephesus was the third most influential city in the then Roman Empire. Second only to Rome and Alexandria. Tucked up high on the hill, well, four things influenced Ephesus significantly. The first was it was a political capital, uh, which gave an incredible amount of political clout in the area. It was the economic regional capital. It was a crossroads of roads, and it had a port 
at that time, and so it was a highly prosperous community. But two other things made it very interesting. The one was uh, they built a, a library of about 12 to 1,500 scrolls that were used for study, knowledge, and education. And then the last one, the fourth one that bears relevance to our conversation, was the Temple of Artemis, or Diana. Artemis, and if you've been to Greece, to Athens, to the Parthenon, this temple was significantly larger than that. It was up on the hill. It loomed large. It cast this huge shadow over Ephesus. Twice a week, her worshippers would come down. Artemis's worshippers would come and dance through the streets, singing their songs of praise. She herself was sculpted to be a woman. Um, she had what we don't know. Some say breasts. Some say the the the, the, the ball sacks of cows. I don't quite know how else to say it. Uh, all over her midriff slash chest. And, and they, they've tried to say, because she was a hunter, uh, she, was, she was known as the protector of virgins, so is this a sexual thing? Is it a, a thing that, that will produce the fruit of your hunting labor? Was it therefore the sorcery and magic that she represented? Now I'm saying all of this to say this. What was the message of Jesus that was so compelling that one, it went to all of Asia Meisner within two years. What was it that flicked the switch in these people that left their family of origin? These were Greeks. They weren't Jews. They were first-generation Jesus lovers. They left everything behind to take the gospel into all of Asia Minor within just a very short period of time. Secondly, what was it that created such faith inside of them that they wanted to see signs, wonders, and miracles happen amongst them? It says extraordinary miracles. That aprons and handkerchiefs were used if, uh, uh, to take what Paul had done and put it on the sick and see them healed. What was it that was so compelling that there was authentic deliverance that saw people set free, dramatically set free, not cyclic repetition of sinful behavior, but lines broken. What was it that produced such worship that to me this is one of the most graphic pictures of worship where people brought all their sorcery goodies, their little potions, their bags, their, 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 their stuffs, their scrolls, and publicly burnt it. Now a drachma represented one day's uh, wages. That is 50,000 days worth of wages of scrolls and portions publicly burnt as an act of dying to the idols that have held me captive and I will now worship the true God. And I try to think, I was walking through the vineyards praying this morning and then my math absolutely let me down. But I thought, whatever, what is, what is a day's wage for you? Multiply that by 50,000, and that will give you some indication of what it cost them to burn this publicly. How and why was something so compelling that their worship was so extravagant, so sacrificial, so driven not by what benefits me or by what I'm comfortable with, but what Jesus requires of me? Isn't that exquisite? That's why, to me, this is one of the most sublime stories of worship in the New Testament. 
this first-generation Gentile community, so compelled by this Jesus. And I have to ask as a preacher of the gospel, Lord, why or how do I offer you as a mediocre, soft, kind of blurry, mid-gray, kind of vanilla-type Jesus It doesn't really cost everything because you're not that compelling and you're not that amazing and lives don't really get changed and there aren't really great miracles. What is it that they had that we don't have? Because I think when that thing grabs us, it's not so much an assessment of what will it cost. It's the overriding privilege of what happens when this compelling story gets a hold of me. Now, I want to play you something, if I can, very briefly, and then I'm going to tell you the story around it. Can I have that other microphone, please? Thanks. Let me see if I can pull this off quickly. As a non... Give me a moment. This is amazing. Come on, one more try, and if it doesn't work, we won't use it. The internet? Uh, the internet's not up. Try again. It's gone, it's just taking a while. Okay, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. Here's the story. I'm driving home the other day, my, my car radio's on NPR. I'm kind of in my own thoughts, and... Um, I pick up on a story that caught my attention. So I researched the backstory. This is what happened. I'm listening, and they're playing a piece from Mozart in the Handel's Theater in Boston. It's Handel's funeral music. No, I'm lying to you. It is Mozart's funeral music. And as the piece comes to an end, there is a minute silence or less, and then there is a little kid's voice that screams across the theater, Wow! See? There is the silence, then a chuckle, and then rapturous applause. So I thought, now this is very interesting. I have to get out. I've got an appointment to rush to, so go and Google it. Here's the story. A grandpa, Stephen Madden, was taking his nine-year-old grandson, Ronan Madden, to the theater. Ronan is on the autistic scale. His grandpa says, as far as he can remember, he is, he, he, he is pretty much illiterate. He, uh, sorry, he doesn't speak. This is one of a handful of times where Ronan actually exclaimed a word. Being not socially aware, this nine-year-old little boy was so captivated by Mozart's Mason Funeral Symphony that when it was done, and we're not talking the Messiah now, we're not talking one of the great Vivaldi's Four Seasons, we're talking about a blooming funeral march. And this little nine-year-old was so compelled by what he heard that in his non-verbal life, he exclaimed, insensitive to the 1,200 people who were there, wow! See, what is the wow 
of worship is my talk this morning. Well, what is that one thing that gets us to exclaim against social norms, against what I'm supposed to behave like and be like and do like? What is that thing that forces me to exclaim the wonder of who my God is and I can't contain and I can't help myself? You and I know we are created to worship, aren't we? Just go to a sports game and you will see pretty soon how everyone in that, in that arena or room are worshiping, lifting their hands. Interesting, I'm a, I'm a British soccer fan. My team is Liverpool and their team song is a hymn. You'll never walk alone. See, it's a hymn. It's a hymn. Because we were created to worship. Now, 60,000 painted, dressed men of sane mind go and watch 22 men chase a piece of leather around for 90 minutes and their next week and their love life will be affected by whether it's a W or an L. What is it in us that wants to worship? And if we can't find the authentic, we will create the temporal because there's no hall of fame in heaven. There's no superstars in heaven. Jesus will be the only superstar in heaven. And yet we cannot help it. My son was at Coachella over Easter. And he was at Kanye's church service. And he said to me, (laughs) true story. And he said, Dad, it was amazing. He said, Dad, everything about it felt like we would do it. And I want to quote from an article I read because I researched it. I'm millennial. I'm just like you. We Google everything. (laughs) And he says the performance. West's latest Sunday service was held last Sunday because he has others in Calabasas. At weekend two of the American Premier Music Festival, Coachella Valley Music and Arts Festival. The performance took place on a grassy hill. Do you know you can buy a square foot of grass from that hill because of the church service? Performers wore faded mauve ensembles for the occasion. And the sermon was given by a fellow rapper, DMX. Talentino, who writes this, watched this gathering closely and says, and I quote, With Kanye, it's always been a very complicated dance between whether he is worshiping God or subsuming God to his own ends. Don't laugh. Is that not sometimes the tension we live in? If I worship you, will you give me a baby? If I worship you, will you give me a husband or a better job? Kanye is just out there. Talentino says he grew up Christian. He has spoken about it. There's always a sense, though, that he might worship God but never serve him. It's always been like God in the end will always serve Kanye. Now, my journey. I was born Afrikaans, which is of Dutch descent. And... Basically, it was cold, bland, and distant. Smiling was not even optional. Smiling was irreverent. The songs were doer. They were sang through pure ritual and tradition. And so my dad took us and we left and we became Methodists. 
because it was closer. <laughs> it's like, um, we're going to change theology, ecclesiology, mystery. We're going to change everything because it's a few blocks closer to our house. But you see, there, we also sang hymns, John Wesley, John, Charles Wesley, and other hymns. And it was a little more casual. You could smile at church. But our favorite was Pop's Bunker. Pops was probably really old. He was about my age. And um, the thing with Pops was that he would kind of get really inspired every now and again, and we would sing a chorus twice. <laughs> we would sing it twice, you know, and we'd kind of elbow each other. Everyone knows it's Pops, you know. Uh, uh, a little bit cuckoo. Yeah, because, because, because there was a tradition that was the measure of true worship. It was a tradition that compelled a Sunday routine and behavior that required me to behave in a particular way. And lo and behold, I remember the Methodist church, because the hymns were always long. John and Charles wrote long hymns. So the pastor would get up, the reverend, the minister would say, we will sing the first, third, and fifth verses. And everyone's relieved, you know, oh, thank God, we didn't have to sing all five of them, you know. And then Pops would come up and, one more time, and we were like, oh, Pops, you know. Poor guy, he's going to be with Jesus soon. Um, but, but what it did for me is, is it created for me the opportunity to overcome the obstacle of tradition versus encounter. And, and I realized as I move on, I realized that encounter is God's deepest affection, not ritual repetition. That satisfies my control freak human need. But that's not what God has in mind, is that I encounter him from the little child to the oldest person amongst us, from the most broken to the most whole, that every time we gather there is a beauty and a synergy and a harmony because the divine and the the human collide in worship. It's a mystery. And so we can't cope with the mystery, so we craft tradition to remove mystery. I want mystery. I, I want me and, and Meryl and, and, and my kids, when they were smaller now that they're older and my two girls are worship leaders and, and my son surfs, um, I, I want an encounter with the living God. And I knew there was this deep inner hunger for more than the first, the third, and the fifth verse. But I knew something had to die inside of me to discover something else. And so my next big moment was when I came to faith in December 1976 and uh, joined a church called the Invisible Church. Yep, I know. I remember us meeting in a hotel and and two drunks came out the pub, kind of staggered their way past, and there was a sandwich board, the Invisible Church meets here. They thought it was the funniest thing ever. They were, oh, 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 Invisible Church meets here. Where are they? I can't see them. You know, it's just... <laughs> and how do you explain it to my Dutch Reformed Methodist parents that we go to the Invisible Church now? You know, it's not even cool. It's just like, bah. But... The first time I walked in, it was a little Lutheran church in the industrial part of Durban. Pews. Two bouncers were at the door. Paul was the Mr. South African heavyweight bodybuilding champion. Big Dave was there because he was Big Dave. The hug wasn't a hug because we were kind and charismatic and kissy-kissy. It was to smell if you've been drinking because if you've been drinking, you sat on the back row. 
and Paul or Dave's hand was well postured. The moment you go, hand down, out you go. But the first time I went, I'll never forget it. There was such a collision for me of culture and person. See, I was used to an organ. Every now and again, we'd have a big breakthrough moment and have a six-string nylon guitar. You know, soft, not too offensive. And there was this band playing. Brian was bald, never forget. Up in the front, Sid was the lead guitarist who was, a, was an addict who got saved. A.B., I realized then that bass guitarists don't smile. It was like my revelation, that moment. He just stood there with his long blonde hair, hippie style, just playing. And Robbie was on the drums. And Robbie became my drummer many years later. But, but there was this collision this collision, this cultural moment where I was offended and curious all at the same time. My culture shouted at me because my family of origin would have said, no, this is wrong. Not even this is personal privilege. This is wrong. You don't do rock in a church. You hear what I'm saying? And then the personal prophetic curious part of me was like, God, you're in the house. This is no normal, let's sing three songs. Now, in those days, it was a charismatic renewal. You sang three fast ones, one slow one. You land in E minor, then you sing in tongues. That, that was the liturgy of the day. And, and, but, 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 I, but I knew, and I mean, Meryl can, can attest to it, I knew that God was in the house. I, I saw people weeping. I, I saw people breaking. I saw people on their knees for the first time. I saw people in the aisles face down. I saw people encountering God because, because I can't remember her name, but Cynthia was a prostitute who got saved. See, th- this wasn't just a little willy-nilly, well, I, you know, I went to middle school and, and, th- and then I got married and we got a nice, you know, four, four, and I'm not being disparaging. I'm talking about the people who were there. Robbie, not the drummer, another Robbie was an addict who got saved. And so I could go around the room, broken people for whom Jesus meant something. And was it a surprise that we worshiped with abandoned passion and we sang loudly and we sang passionately and we sang forcefully, not because someone was the orchestra conductor, but because we were so in love with jolly Jesus because he changed our lives. And I was the son of an alcoholic and Jesus had changed my life. What is it that adds the wow to your worship that isn't driven by the obligation of two or three songs to front end and tear preaching, but it's something that explodes inside of your chest unlike any other thing you know that brings you back week after week, time after time, driving in your car, cutting carrots uh, in your kitchen, playing with the kids, worshiping with the kids. What is the wow in your worship? The obstacles for those days were that our faults and our flaws would not disqualify us from worshiping Jesus. See, I was an elder at 19 in one of our communal houses. And I just sit many, many, many a day with, oh, gee, they've slept together again. Okay, now let's start again. Let's rebuild them. Oh, well, he's slipped. He's just smoked dope. Let's, let's rebuild him. But the hope was not in a lifestyle well lived. It was in the power of grace and mercy that meets me when I worship. What is the wow 
in your worship? Or is it so predictable in your story that there is no wow anymore? Grace isn't that amazing anymore. Mercy isn't that satisfying anymore. And then at I was 25, 24, Meryl was 21 when we planted our first church. You with me? Is this helpful? I hope so. So here we were, two kids, with 40 others just like us, completely clueless, and we planted a church, and we thought, well, we've got to have some values, because all the books told us to. So we came up with four. We were going to be real, relational, radical, and relevant. I mean, that's, that's amazing, you've got to admit. That's really, really good. Well, it was because we didn't have any better ones. It was real, relational, radical, and relevant. And so what we did was we said, if something, if we sing something, we're going to do it. And, and I was the maestro orchestra conductor. So if it said we kneel before the Lord and people didn't kneel, I'd stop the band. And I'd say, can we read that together? Let us kneel before the Lord. You can do that when you're 25, 26, and clueless. Say, <laughs> so what's the verb there? The verb is kneel. All right, everyone on your knees. On our knees. They shout to the Lord. You know, shout to, ah, stop. Let's read it together. Shout to the Lord. One, two, three. I mean, I don't know. I know. What was I thinking? You know, shout to the Lord. We were committed to being a worshipping people. Ladies and gentlemen, the mystery of worship is we don't understand the impact it has. We think it's there to placate some kind of personal moral duty and obligation, when actually it is this world where the supernatural and the natural come together, and God does stuff with it. Isn't it interesting that when they moved the cloud and the pillar during the book of Exodus, it said that the tribe of Judah who led them in worship led out first. That wasn't because it was God's favorite. That was because God wanted to go into worship first. You want to buy a house? Get the prayers and the worshipers going through the house, room by room, door by door, round the yard, singing his praises. Let Judah go out in front. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So we planted out. Our first church plant was our worship leader. So off he went. Then we had this decision, well, what do we do? We have no musician. So what we did is we put a single microphone up here for nine months without an instrument. I could have picked up my guitar and led worship. I felt God say no. For nine months, my single appeal every Sunday was, this is an opportunity for us to become a worshiping people by conviction, not by following the instruments. It crafted an incredible worship culture. We had to. During that time, we did a bunch of things called praise parties. See, the problem is we divide our lives up into the secular and the sacred, don't we? So what we did, we were at a 50th birthday party last night. We danced the longest and the loudest. Dana and Stu, Tian, my son, Meryl and I, and whoever else rotated around us. People know I'm in ministry. And so you can see the quizzical look on their eyes saying, Mmm, mmm, mmm. Should you be doing this? Should you be doing that move you've just done? And then my son comes up and starts doing this, and I'm like, oh, Jesus. 
help us. And I can feel all the legalists with their notepads out, you know, pencil from behind the eyes saying, you know, pelvic thrust seven times, you know. Why? We've crafted this us and them. What we do on a Saturday, that's why young people don't want to come here. It's such a, there's the, the, the absence of the celebration that Saturday night is more compelling than Sunday morning. But what if we make them the same? So we did. Let's twist again like we, thou art worthy. Let's twist again like, why not? Because we imply that is not that. What if that and that are the same? So we cleared the chairs out, and we took a praise party around South Africa, and we just celebrated. You know what I did cheekily three years ago? Once a year. How am I doing time-wise, my love? Thomas, am I running out of time? Okay, so, so we gather these pastors together. And you know planters, they all got their pastor's hat on. You know, hi, how are you doing? Oh, I lead a church. There's 75 people in my church. And I didn't ask that. I just said, how are you doing? It's like this automatic response. So I didn't tell anyone, especially not Meryl, because she would have tried to speak me out of it. And I went to, um, I went to the, the, the people on the box at the back. I said, can you find me the Vietnamese waltz? Na, 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 na. So I said, everyone came in, no chairs, a little bit awkward. I said, you know, we're going to do some worship tonight. Can the couples please come center stage? I mean, the center of the floor. Yeah, sure. This is interesting. I said, we're going to waltz together. I mean, some guys who've never learned how to waltz, I'm going to tell you. And that was cool, and that was, that was sanitized, and that was fine. And then there was Daniel's church, the Latinos from South Central. So I said, can I have all the Latino people here? Find me the danciest Mexican music that you can. And all the whiteys and all the Mexicans, oh, oh, let's go, let's go, let's go. And we got them dancing. And you know, it was so interesting for me, the worship that came out of that freedom, where we celebrated cultures, we celebrated genres, we celebrated styles. Because what happens is we narrow ourselves down to, this is the Reformed worship style, this is Bethel, ooh, Bethel worship style, this is Hillsong, ah, $5,000 sneakers worship, you know, and it's like, what if we erase those categories? And the freedom and the abandonment of that celebration time created in us a culture of worship that produced, dear friends, people coming to faith. Now, initially, it used to disorientate me because people didn't get saved when I preached. And, and, and I was 20-something, and I thought I was a pretty good preacher. But no one ever got saved. And it's so humbling, you know. All right, who'd like to put up their hands and give their lives to Jesus? No one. <laughs> and then you get, today, I feel like the Lord wants someone to get saved. Do I hear amen? You know, you kind of use all the tech. No one gets saved. And then the worship. I feel like there's someone here who wants to just encounter God, wants to give their life to God. People would come forward. Why? 1 Corinthians 14 tells us, when the prophetic is let loose, people come and say, surely God is in the house. See? It's not singing songs, ritual or tradition. It is the prophetic presence of the living God that draws people to him. The day someone did come to faith, after I'd been preaching for about two years, the church went ballistic. <laughs> they were so relieved for me, you know. 
Yay! You know? Oh, it's funny. That guy became a pastor. I think he had no other option but to become a pastor. All right, moving quickly, I've got a few more stories to tell. I want you to be compelled again. I, I, I want you to be derobed of your own personal prejudice. You know, we planted a church in Ensenada, Mexico. So we did a launch Sunday. I'm messing with my order now, but it doesn't matter. And, and, and so we started worshiping. This is Mexico. We end up in the street. Every person in the launch thing from South Africa, here, I mean, wherever, we end up in the street. They call the cops. The cops say, what's going on here? We said, are we planting a church? You should have seen his face. He was like, huh? Huh? He said, we're planting a church officer. He said, why didn't you tell us we would have cordoned the street off? And he starts dancing with us. You see, there is the celebration. There is the life. There is the vitality. It breaks the cultural limitations. It's like heaven, like earth. What do you honestly think worship in heaven will be like? Pews? Do you honestly think rows? Oh dear, they're going to lift their hands. They're going, oh no, it's happening. They've lifted their hands. Oh dear, we're going to have to get the deacons to speak to them. You know? Really? Is that what heaven's going to be? The worship patrol, you know, 45 degrees, they've lifted their arms. Oh, it's going to 60. There's going to be this abandoned freedom where we are not held captive by personality, family of origin. We're not held captive by our culture or our age. Or You see, Chris, I'm, I'm really old. You know what I do? We've planted a church. I go to the front every single Sunday because I don't trust my emotions. What happens if I don't feel like worshiping that day? Well, actually, I actually also I want to go home and watch a TV show, watch a football game and have a beer. So I can't trust my emotions. So I go and stand right next to the musicians here. Right, yeah. And I'm talking to them the whole time. Great, good choice, great transition. Because I don't trust myself. Because the flesh in this Jesus lover is still able to prohibit and inhibit my worship style. And if it's a song that we've got to dance to, I want to dance. I want, to, I want our little community of 23, 24-year-olds who are all in their heads because they're on Bihola and Vanguard. I want them to get out of their heads and into their hearts. And I want them to know what it feels like to encounter the living God personally, consistently, continuously. And if Meryl and I, who've walked with Jesus for 42 years, can still do it, there's hope for them to keep doing it. Are you with me? A couple of more stories in our land. Um, you know, I love seeing the little kids here. Do you know why my girls are worship leaders? Not because we beat the heck out of them. Dana had a Russian piano teacher. Oh, my word. You can imagine Dana and a Russian piano teacher. You must sit like this and have a tennis ball or something. And Dana's like, you know, just nutty, crazy. Nass was a violinist. But that isn't why they lead worship. Two things. Vinnie and, Vinnie and Jen will know. One was this. The kids worshipped with us. Still today. I mean worshipped. And we try to write into the craft of our worship daddy, mommy, and kids celebration times. Where we dance together. <laughs> See? Church was fun. It wasn't, shh, shut up, sit down. All right, we're gonna, can I go now? Can I go to kids ministry? Not now. It was this family-integrated sense. 
And why I say Vinnie and Jen? Because they were with us. The older ones, as they were, and they were like really old, like 21, um, they would take the kids if they didn't have a dance with them. So what does that tell our children? Worship isn't a stoic space where mom and dad sing some really big words on a screen. It's what we do when we worship. Sometimes that flags. Sometimes they just dance. Sometimes they jump up and dance with me because I wanted my kids to see me worship. That my instinct, my first response to whatever life gives us is worship. Does that make sense, folk? It overcomes the things that prohibit me because I know there are those days four little eyes that watched me. Four little eyes that, what's my dad going to do now? Is he going to lift his hands? Is he going to go on his knees? Is he going to fall on his face before the Lord? I wanted to give them the full range of worship scenarios so that in their lives, and obviously it's deeply satisfying now to see both of them leading worship off the keys. What's the picture you give your kids? Is it, I'm Mr. Gruff, I'm Mr. Football, you know? Or is it you're a gentle, tender, but strong dad that they can lean on in difficult times, but who knows how to offer Jesus extravagant praise, generous worship, not, why are they taking so long? See, restored may come and go in terms of your involvement. You may move. I say to our people, we're all leaving Genesis by divine call, by naked rebellion, or in a box. Everyone's leaving. In the post-restored journey for you, what will your kids experience? What will their memory be? You know what my memory is? Is what we want our kids to say. I remember looking at my dad's face And I see the love of Jesus in his eyes. He was so compelled by Jesus. No matter what happened at work that week, no matter how hard it was and things weren't budgeting and a big client let me down. But you know what my dad did? The first thing, instinct he had was to lift his hands and worship Jesus. And I remember that and now I do the same. Because I want my kids to see that look on my face. Last story. Two stories. Two stories? <laughs> this is a short one, Meryl. Meryl, they're short stories and long stories. This is a short one. <laughs> Once a year, we used to, when I was, the part of Moon we were in before, we'd bring all the leaders around South Africa together, and it ended up being four, four and a half thousand people sometimes in the center of the country, and um, uh, I mean, it was wild. It was beautiful. But I was on the stage one day, actually taking photographs for our magazine, the musicians were setting up, and um, suddenly the hall goes quiet. Now, as people coming in, it's like your five minutes of chaos. It's that same thing. People are coming in, and the next minute we hear choral harmony on the left. I'll never forget it. And we all look at each other and say, what is that? It wasn't tongues. It was more profound. And then it was worship. Were you guys there that time, Vinny? And then it was worship that came from the back bleachers of this huge college gymnasium. And I tell that story to remind us we're not singing alone. You can argue there wasn't angels. I don't mind. 
But what I do whenever I think of that story was the opportunity that God gave us a little window, a little peep in. You think it's 70, 80, 100 people, however many are here, singing your songs, and, but, but, but there's a choral harmony. The angels you're singing with that are shifting atmospheres, changing the climate, the spiritual climate over a region. We don't know what power our worship has because it's collaborating, collaging, and colluding with the other angels so that God can shift the mood and atmosphere. I don't know what holds Temecula captive. Is it drugs? Is it promiscuity? Is it marriages that fall? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I know the enemy is at work here. But it doesn't help talking about it around barbecues and a glass of wine. We shift the climate with our praise, with our worship, with our adoration, where we make Jesus the king who truly is king, and we truly live in his kingdom. Lastly, we were in Australia at a pastor's conference and uh, probably about 120 people, my love, I'm guessing. God gives me a prophetic song. I don't do much of that anymore. I did more then. And it was the picture of Elijah, which says, pick up your cloak and run. You know the story. He's, he's praying. They've been in um, drought for seven years, whatever it was. I can't remember the detail now. And he prays. And every, every time he prays, he gets up and he sends his servant. He says, is there a cloud yet? And, and uh, the, the servant says, not yet. And he gets into squatting to the, the, the birth-giving position. And he squats in deep and profound intercession, supplicating for the nation and the rain that needs to come because it's a brutal time. Oh, that we would have men and women like this for our nation that is so deeply divided. I don't care where your politics lies. What I care about is the absence of harmony and collaboration and partnership, a nation united at a time which sorely needs that. And he prays, no, sir, no cloud. Prays again, sorry, sir, no cloud. And then the servant runs back. He says, Master, Master, there's a cloud the size of a man's fist. And Elijah says, pick up your cloak and run. The rains are coming. And he literally picks up his garment and starts running. We're in worship. I remember that story. And I go up to the microphone and start singing prophetically. It's embarrassing. It's awkward. My voice is okay, but I'm really gifted at hitting the odd flat note. You know, all of that kind of stuff. We all end up outside the room because we picked up our cloak and ran. These are pastors and their wives, dignified people, we thought. (laughs) You know what was powerful about that moment? It was a mobilizing moment in which God sent men and women around the world. It took a prophetic song that shifted the atmosphere, moved men's hearts, moved women's hearts to say yes to a call to a life of sacrifice and surrender. What's your obstacle? Because we all have them. I've got all of mine in brown. I could keep you really entertained by all of them. What are yours? What are the things that keep you conservative, withheld, mediocre? The joyous thing about the wow of worship is that God wants us to step over the obstacles that inhibit us. And the moment we step into that abandoned space, whatever the moment requires, whatever love he shows me, whatever he draws us to, that is worth the price tag. 
Let's pray together. A little nine-year-old boy listened to Mozart's Mason's funeral orchestra piece, and he shouted, wow. Jesus, there's nothing more compelling than you. There is nothing more amazing. There's nothing more profound. There's nothing more transformative. There's nothing more that reaches into my soul. There's nothing more that calls me to a higher call. There's nothing that equates to your mercy or to your grace or to your forgiveness or your transformation. There is nothing. It is our wow to worship. Thank you for letting me tell a few of my stories. There's so much more, so much deeper, so much more profound. My prayer was in the vineyard this morning and is now that this week we'll see moments where each one of us engages with you in worship, in depths, in honesty, in heights, in transparency, unlike anything we've done before. Where we overcome the hurdles of our own personal prejudice, our cultural requirements, our family of origin approval our brokenness, our faults and flaws, but that we are a worshiping people. That is the wow of our worship.